Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, how to cover excess and vulgarity in media. So you will have seen coverage of the Met Ball, partly because of a tax the rich dress that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez wore, but also an attempt by uh, several other people to kind of bring activism into this space. And the bigger issue is like, how does journalism write about this moment that we're in, which is characterized by the most extreme wealth inequality in the history of the country? My view is that it hasn't been doing it very well. So I figure what better person to talk to about this than Larry Fink. Larry is a amazingly renowned photographer, both an art photographer and a magazine photographer and a commercial photographer, but he became really well known for his photographs of the Met Gala, the Vanity Fair Oscar party, and he had found a way to photograph these people in their kind of opulent settings while also commenting on the ridiculousness of it and the incongruity of it. I spoke with Larry from he, from his farmhouse in Pennsylvania. You can actually hear crickets in the background during the conversation. And we're joined briefly by Amanda Dara, who's the producer of this podcast. Where are you physically? Well, I'm sitting in, in our office in our farmhouse, which is was built in 1740. Uh, it's in the middle of the field, surrounded by no neighbors by at least a mile and a half away. And I can see the azure blue of the sky and the green cedar trees. This is in Pennsylvania? In Pennsylvania, yes. How is this a COVID thing, or have you lived out there for a, for a while? 55 years. Mm-hmm. Full time out there. Full time. There, there's a lot of photographs of nature from around there, and, and I know that you're doing a exhibit. Have you, is that, are those recent, or are those, have those been there for a while, the nature photographs from, the, are they from that area? The nature pictures are, are, uh, disseminated across a certain certain amount of time because inside the sh- and talking about the show that's upcoming at the Sterner Gallery on October 1st it opens going on for two months at any rate there are some pictures from 1978 when I was photographing praying mantises yeah obsessively then there are pictures from snowfalls from yesteryear and I think it's probably four or five years ago. I'm not sure. I don't, I'm not that terribly organized when it comes to code like that. And then there's a group of maybe 10 or 12 pictures, which I just did COVID in the COVID times, which is to say not to go outside too freely. Um, and those are just from the house and from around. And yeah, just sometimes nature, sometimes the nature of things meaning nothing at all to look at except the way you look at it. Like, for instance, some a picture of Q-tips, of all things, the most banal uh, subject matter. But if you have eyes that see, you can make them into something else than what they actually be. How has COVID changed the way you think about 
what you want to photograph or what people might want to see? I don't care what people might want to see, number one, uh, because that's not my concern. Uh, it was my concern for all of my life because I was a magazine photographer, an editorial photographer, an advertising photographer, then uh, a fine art photographer. The fine art photographer was outside of what people wanted to see. All the other ones is exactly what people wanted to see. COVID, get back mm -hmm. to COVID. Mm, yeah, it's changed because I won't go out and look at another person. I, usually I photograph people very, very close. I'm not getting any place close to those monkeys anymore. <laughs> I, I see You're a done. human being coming down my road. I run the other way. <laughs> it's funny you say that your, like your magazine photography was, you know, you had to respond to what people wanted to see. But like one of your geniuses is to like, you're, you're a sign and you think people think you're going to give them what they want to see. And then you give them something else. Um, I'm reminded of the, um, the Met, Met Gala photographs. Uh -huh. Was it, well, what was their response? I guess I shouldn't assume. Well, the, the, the scenario was interesting. Uh, Jeff Rosenheim, the curator of photography, a very good curator indeed, at the Met, hired me to photograph a big, big party for some of the young donors. Could be old mm -hmm. donors too, as long as they you know paid in to get to the party. The, the blip on it was that Come see, and they had a, a Gary Winograd photograph of the Met many, many years ago. Mm -hmm. And then they said, come be art. Let Larry Fink yes. photograph you at your party, you know, and, uh -huh. uh, and so on. The, the scenario was that I was going to photograph. I was on that very evening. I was going to edit. And at that same time, I was going to throw those pictures that I took that evening on the wall that evening to satisfy our, 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 our disillusion, may the case be, the people who uh, were at the party. Um, the, there, were no, there was no other photographers allowed in the room. I was the only one. Mm -hmm. And I have to tell you that it was a complex setup. I set up lights all around the, uh, the temple of uh, Dendo where the party was. And it was a very, very you know, lovely you know, photographic scenario, if you will. And I found myself photographing uh, people's ankles and people's ears and people's breasts and people's fears and people's everything, for that matter. The young people there were very appreciative of me, but finally all they were all yearning for the real photographer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. because they were all yearning to get in front of the camera and pose like they should do, would do, will do uh, for their own satisfaction and for the satisfaction of the press if that, so, if that comes to bear, etc. So they were, they were hungry for their own acclaim uh, and they weren't that, that necessarily involved with trying to think about themselves as being part of my uh, dominant artwork, if you will. Um, mm -hmm. 
so they started to get irritated with me for being so um, uh, contrary to uh, the, the, the usual norm. Um, An inversion of, of, like, you saw you saw yourself as being an artist there shooting something and they saw them and they saw you as uh, essentially sort of working for them, right. To, to yeah, shoot the photographs that they wanted. Essentially that's what a photographer does. Is it's a, even though people are sophisticated to a point and believe in the fine art of it all and so on and so forth. But generally speaking, they want photography as a service. And the service is right. basically, uh, you know, um, self self involved. How was it? Was it the same dynamic when you were shooting the Vanity Fair Oscar parties? No, oh, no, <laughs> no. I was just one of the many many photographers who were in the room. Except that mm-hmm. the difference between me and Jonathan Becker and and uh, some, many of the others, was that I was not there to ask people to pose for me and smile. I was there to do the surreptitious, you know, trademark that I'm uh, known for, which is to get candid, if you will, pictures of these very, very non-candid people in this case. but the people, the non-candid people appreciated me because I wasn't asking them to dazzle. On the other hand, besides appreciation, they were always confused by me because they didn't quite know what they could give me that would satisfy me and then henceforth them and so on and so forth. So it's a different scenario than the Met for sure. But it seems like um, on, on, on a lot of your work, it, it, it's about sort of, turning some of this kind of, uh, you know, gilded stuff on its head. And I'm really interested in that right now because um, I really find the, the clash between what, what we've been through with COVID, what we're going through with enormous economic uh, disparity in the country, and yet this, continue, you know, the, this enormous show of wealth um, – and I was, you know, this all came up because I was watching the coverage of the Met Costume Institute Gala, mm-hmm. um, which they sort of shoehorned in to have an extra event, which had been, the earlier one had been canceled. Mm-hmm. And I was watching the coverage and just thinking, like, none of what I saw did what you did, which is try to have some kind of point of view on, on this completely ostentatious and I thought completely inappropriate for the moment display. Um, did you watch any of, did you see any of the, of what emerged from that? No, I did not. And, uh, not because I didn't want to, I actually didn't even know about when it was going to go on, but it's not yeah. my habit to look at, uh, fancy folk, you know, uh, dancing around the parameters of fame. In yesteryear, it's been quite some time since I've worked for Vanity Fair and quite some time, in fact, since I've worked uh, professionally or commercially because um, I'm 80 years old, I'm older, I'm certainly vital and certainly willing to work, but there's no work for me 
and my particular point of view, it might be heralded uh, today, even still, but isn't necessarily called for. Uh, there's something about the, day, the days that we live in, about all of its opulence and its illusion and delusion, that uh, would rather not be seen. We're in a situation which is stagnant and about ready to revolutionarily turn over, but we don't know exactly how. You said about ready to turn over. About ready to turn over, but we don't know how or when for that matter. There's no, there's no theoretical timeline that I can think of in my experience. But we are in a situation where things are so vulgar and their disparity in terms of economic wealth and so on and so forth and unbelievable amassing of greed. And I just was reading actually Chomsky's um, quote the other day about one of the, the thing about capitalism is it's the socialization of, 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 of service and the privatization of uh, capital gain. Uh, so we have so <laughs> so those who are wealthy are going to continue to be to be wealthy, but you know I was thinking about you and I and whatnot. I was thinking about George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and all of the old fellows. And you know, I wonder how long they spent getting those hairs quaffed, <laughs> and how and how much <laughs> and how much and how much. Um, those beautiful clothes that they used to wear back there with their tight socks and their beautiful brocades. Um, how much time did they spend getting into those costumes? How did they sleep in them? You know, so the idea of wealthy or the ostentation of wealth isn't necessarily new upon us. It actually, just like racism, it's, it actually started right. at the beginning and follows us throughout. No. I mean, Thomas Jefferson threads all that together. Yeah. My feeling about the Constitution is that it's a brilliant, brilliant document, but it's a cosmetic because in actual fact, the reality was not anything like the Constitution. What with blacks, what with Irish, what with Germans and the immigrants, there was a tremendous sense of uh, disparity between uh, their various classes, races, and uh, nationalities, and who was serving and who was not. Um, from the very get-go, yeah, uh, democracy was a failed system. Right. Yeah, but then, but then we get into, well, what's the role of journalism as a kind of countervailing force to all this? And there have been times um, in, you know, in the twenties even, but certainly in the 60s, where journalism sort of pushed back and said, you know, this, this wealth and these disparities and these injustices, we got to shine a light on them and we got to show people what it looks like. And we got to, you know, we, we have to um, be a voice for, for, for people who aren't at the gala. Um, that seems not to be in vogue. I mean, I was reading the Times coverage of this Met thing, and it was like, it was crazy how celebratory it all was. Um, 
Why do you, so why is that? Is it, is it just a matter of money, do you think? Like that's where the support for journalism lies? Hmm. It could well be that. I think it's probably not quite that simple, but the, the money is a pretty uh, powerful force, needless to say. And suppression of uh, information is obviously one of the ways that propaganda is built. And also that that's a way to uh, to keep peace on your street is not to talk about the un the, un the the underlying, you know, um, infamy and uh, despair um for sure i don't know um i mean it's a hungry time uh on the other hand we're not being fed yeah know. right i don't have i don't have a i don't have i myself don't have any kind of understanding of what solutions might be i mean you know a, I was brought up in a communist household and my point of view on America was not to overthrow it from the very beginning of my conscious existence, but was to improve it so that it could be more democratically fair in the economic terms as well as every other terms. And um, the, so henceforth, all of the enormous surprises that many, many, many people are experiencing now about the, the disparity that's within our culture were not surprises to me. In fact, they were known before they were even known fully. Um, this is the way my people thought. Uh, what can you say when you, you're not surprised by all this infamy you can just say that it's just the way that the game is being played and has been played and will be played apparently from now until eternity. In so far that human beings, while they have goodness and evil, are also deeply, deeply flawed as a species in terms of how they interact with one another. And it's hard to think anything else but um, a level of either despair or certainly confusion. You talk about despair and you talk about a coming reckoning or whatever. That's not the exact term you use, but that was the idea. So what is it right now that gives you hope? <laughs> not much. The only thing that gives me hope is a singular force, which is to say that each individual has within their own their own organism the potential to go beyond their their uh, what they've been beyond their barriers and, and to open up new parameters every every human being has the possibility of growth and uh in terms of giving me collective help which is once upon a time i had i have no nothing is in sight uh -huh. Amanda, I'm going to open it up just for a second for Amanda. Um, go ahead, Amanda. Yeah, thanks. Hi. Hi, Larry. Hi. So, Larry, you and I work together, and I know you don't like when I talk about the truth. The hope, the truth, <laughs> the, the truth. 
you know who listens to this podcast are a lot of journalists, or I hope a lot of them, but there's journalists listening. Well, well, and Well, they'll, whoever listens, listens. And so, hello, hello, listeners. <laughs> how did you realize that you knew how to get at the underbelly of what was going on? Because I look at shots, I think about you when I see shots, like remember um, Doug Mills of the New York Times of Nancy Pelosi clapping at the State of the Union? Yeah, okay. I think it's interesting as journalists to hear how you learned to show what you show in your pictures. I think it was innate. I think that they, for, for whatever reason, ever since I can remember, I was always looking into people's faces, bodies, and gestures to see whether or not I could find within them something which would be resembling me. Not because I was just a narcissist, but because we are all aligned in some fashion or another. So the whole idea of empathy, which is a popular word these days, but wasn't forever, um, was was mine. Now, empathy doesn't necessarily mean pleasing, sentimental moments. It means empathy, which is to say, can you empathize with evil, which is to say, are you partially evil yourself? Because without being partially something that you're seeing, you won't be able to empathize with it. So that was within me. I was There was something within me that was given to me as a gift or a curse um, to be able to perceive what is the underlying force or lack of it therein within each individual that I, that I, that I point my camera at to try to find out what the, so to speak, truth is. And the truth, by the way, is always a sliding fancy. Right. At any rate, as far as the Met, let me tell you a little story about the Met ball. I photographed it once or twice. Um, I tried to photograph it three or four times or other. And of course, I'm Larry Fink, the famous photographer, so they say. And, and, uh, and I had a, a relationship, a deep relationship with the, Met, with the Metropolitan via Jeff and others. And I try to get back into the Met Ball to photograph again. And never once did they ever consider letting me back in. Uh, do you think, I'll ask you a couple guys a question. Do you think that it was because of my more personalized and possibly seditious way of seeing that they want, they didn't want my attention? Or do you think it was just like happenstance? I wasn't that important uh, in terms of disseminating uh, their information that they wanted to be disseminated or what have you. Um, I don't, I don't understand exactly why they never let me back inside the hall. And by the way, today, I'm not interested in going. <laughs> Martha, my beautiful wife, and I sat up and, and watched the uh, Emmys last night, and, and we said, uh -huh. and we said to each other, "God, baby, do you remember when we were on that scene? You know, in the midst of all of that, the hubaloo and fanciness and swell." And and I and we both chuckled and, and we were having a lot of fun. Um, I was working hard to to be sure, but it was always fun because 
there we were, just regular people, after all, in the midst of all of this swill and swain and splendor, uh, just trying to, if you will, tell a certain truth within each moment. Yeah, I don't know why. I don't know. I obviously don't know why the Met did what it did, but I do think that there's the, and I and I think I imagine Vanity Fair was in the same boat. There was a tension between wanting to have a fancy photographer like Larry Fink at their event and knowing that you were going to that you were going to shoot photographs they may not like. <laughs> um, and they lived with they lived with that for a while, and then it sounds like it sounds like the Met ultimately decided they couldn't live with it anymore. Well, I I had a long relationship with them, 10, almost 12 years, I think. And Graydon Carter, who uh, is a very smart man, used to really, uh, every time he would see me, he would be, he would have a smile on his face, chuckling, I guess, because he knew that I was up to no good. <laughs> right. I do think he's interesting because, I mean, he, you know, he didn't grow up. I mean, he's not from that world. He's from the Midwest. Yeah. Um, originally. And I think that there was always an undercurrent with him of, of um, conflict and, and a little bit of toying with these people that were his audience. And I think that was part of what made the magazine work mm-hmm. um, because you sense that, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a, there was a wink in the embrace, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Anyway, I I, um, I so appreciate you coming on. It's been great. To well, talk. anyhow, we could go on forever because we're we're in the same business and we're alive and alive and, and human, which is wonderful. Exactly. So you can read CGR's coverage of all of this. You can take a look at how we write about these issues at CGR.org. Follow us on our daily email newsletter, The Media Today. Also, watch out for our new print magazine, which is all about resetting the conversation about how politics is covered in this country, you'll see um, a rollout of those print stories. And in fact, the next podcast of The Kicker you'll hear will be an interview on some of those stories. And follow us on social media. Thanks for listening. See you next time.